In a world where mental health problems are used as common tropes in various forms of storytelling, therapist Ryan Engelstad and executive producer Mike Graham try to determine what lines up with real life and what is just exaggerated fantasy. Listen as we delve into the fantastical tales told about mental health in books, movies, and television. This is Pop Psych 101. Welcome back to Pop Psych 101. I am licensed therapist Ryan Engelstad here as always with my co-host, New York City visitor, father, and executive producer, Mike Graham. Oh my goodness. All right. Yeah. So I think that was equally as long as last week. Uh, I was hoping for more monikers, but that's okay. I, I'll I take gave it. you the New York City visitor. This is a big <laughs> deal for you. Is that going to be like our spiel now is just keep adding and then that's the joke and see how long we can take that. Well, and we're also acknowledging big steps for ourselves and our podcast. Yeah. We okay. are coming from you, for you, from New York City. That's true. That's true, actually. Yeah. And your first visit. Yeah, this, so uh, we are in New York City right now in the Anchor.fm headquarters recording our podcast. They invited and selected our podcast to come here and record in their little uh, quiet space. And we, it was a great honor that they, you know, even wanted us here. So we came and that for me, that was uh, because I refused to fly an 18 As we discussed drive. last week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> on the phobias episode, so. That's right. So you are here 18 hours later after a long drive, and I'm here two hours uh, drive in the rain. Right, because you are from Jersey. So I am you not too far away. Which is still two hours is two hours. Yeah, and, and it activated a lot of my anxiety this morning through the traffic and the rain, but we're here. We're excited. For me, the whole anchor process has been really cool. I've only been on the app for less than a year, and here we are in the studio. So Yeah, this, is, this whole thing with this podcast has been awesome so far. So... Just more and more people keep listening. There's some exciting things that I don't know if we can even talk about yet, but you might find us easily accessible in your car soon. Uh, we can't really say any names yet, but but yeah, man, it has been, this New York thing is craziness. It is crazy for a lot of reasons. I was here uh, just yesterday with my wife running the New York City Marathon. Obviously, congratulations to her. Jen did an amazing job, um, but happy to be back here. We We teased last week the idea of doing sort of a, themed show because we'd be here in new oh, york yeah. and we we sort of ditched that idea very quickly but we are doing a themed show this is very down my alley mike a beautiful mind which is the the movie we're talking about today based on a book a biography about john nash john nash being a a professor at princeton university and student as well student and and set in princeton university so being the fact that i work down the block i have a lot of feelings about the the environments in and around princeton university so that's right. because you you're based in princeton your practice right. your practice is in princeton i work down the street from the university i have walked the streets uh, where this was filmed wow so i have a lot of feelings so i'm ready to get into it okay okay uh i am too and I do want to just tell everyone, thank you for listening. We, we're just really enjoying doing this. But I also wanted to say there are a lot of rumors about New York that are not true. The people are much nicer here than, than you hear from outside of New York. And this has been an awesome experience. So, so good, good job, New York. Way, yeah. way to refute some of the, <laughs> <laughs> some of the, uh, the bad impressions that people have about you. All right. All right. Let's do it. Let's do it. Thank you. 
I've always believed in numbers, in the equations and logics that lead to reason. But after a lifetime of such pursuits, I ask, what truly is logic? Who decides reason? My quest has taken me through the physical, the metaphysical, the delusional, and back. And I have made the most important discovery of my career. most important discovery of my life. It is only in the mysterious equations of love that any logical reasons can be found. I'm only here tonight because of you. You are the reason I am. <sighs> you are all my reasons. All right, this week we are doing A Beautiful Mind. A Beautiful Mind is a 2001 film directed by Ron Howard and inspired by the life of John Nash, a mathematical genius and recipient of the Nobel Prize in Economics. This movie takes place between uh, 1947 and 1994. It actually spans a huge section of John Nash's life. This film follows Nash from the time as a graduate student at Princeton University through to his old age, actually, as a professor at Princeton. Today, what we're going to focus on, which is actually really what the movie just focuses on, there's not a lot of, of outside things happening. It's, it's pretty straightforward. Today, we're going to focus on the apparent delusions and paranoia that Nash presents in the film as he claims to be working at a top secret level for the government as a code cracker. We will touch on his time and treatment at a mental facility and the way Nash is shown coping with his delusions as he earns his position at the university to teach again, once again, at the university. So he goes from a student through these delusions and all this, this really intense stuff going on with paranoia and seeing things that might not be there to coping with it and teaching once again at the university. Yeah, so John Nash is an incredible uh, story. Obviously, this is based on his book and the movie, which was interpreted by that book. You know, I'm just going to come right out at the top here. John Nash had a lot of problems with how his life was portrayed in this story. So this one, just so everyone knows, this one particularly, this diagnosis as a paranoid or schizophrenia or whatever, I almost know nothing about. So this is, you're going to have to tell me a lot. Yeah, I'm happy to because, and and. There's a lot of things going on in the country and the world right now where there is this movement to sort of more properly address mental health. Right. But schizophrenia, paranoid schizophrenia is one of the diagnoses that sometimes feels left behind in that there are so much preconceived notions about what schizophrenia looks like, what people who are suffering from schizophrenia are capable of, and even to a certain extent, how dangerous they are to the community. Right. And some of that is portrayed in the movie. As far as someone who doesn't know what it is, if there's rumors out there, you're believing them. Normally, I have a pretty good grasp on what I'm seeing, whether it's accurate or not. And, you know, so I'm writing questions down to lead you to tell us the answers. And here I'm just like, I have no idea. So, so that's going to get me started on. Uh, so John Nash, he starts as a student in, towards the beginning. He, he has a roommate 
move in named Charles and him and Charles actually, he, I think he loves Charles. Like he, he really gets along with him and John Nash is presented in the movie as a very awkward person. Yeah. Uh, my sister was watching it. She was watching it and she said, he seems almost autistic or something. He can't make eye contact. He's, he's very socially awkward, you know? So this is as far as rumors or outsider perspective of autism. That's what it, it felt like. And so you, you go through this time and he meets his wife. Uh, is it Alicia or is it Alicia? Alicia. Alicia. Yeah. And so he has a wife, but very shortly into this crazy stuff starts happening. He starts seeing a man that they refer to as Big Brother, played by Ed Harris. Yep. I mean, it just jumps right into it. So I'm immediately thinking, what is it trying to show us? And even the, the roommate that you mentioned, and spoiler alert, obviously here, there, there are a lot of things that are gradually revealed over the course of the movie. But Charles, the roommate, is not real. And, and things Which are, is like a big twist. Yes, of course. So, you know, you're introduced to these characters over the course of the movie, which initially are revealed from the perspective of John Nash as... These are just people that he's running into in the, in the course of his life. Right, right. They, they, it's a mystery, you know, and sure. they want the emotional twist to get you and everything. So, and it worked for me. I was like, whoa! Therein lies <laughs> the biggest problem with this movie and one of the biggest problems that John Nash has with the portrayal of his mental illness, which is that he very rarely, if ever, experienced actual visual hallucinations. Oh, in real life? Correct. First off, so what, what is the thing they're trying to show us? What is it called? So it's called schizophrenia or paranoid schizophrenia. Some of the symptoms that have portrayed John Nash experiencing the paranoia, what we call persecutorial delusions, where you feel like people are coming out to get you. Um, in this case, uh, for John Nash, it was the government. But even just feeling like people were sort of against him in general. In the book, actually, there's a whole theme where he, everyone who has a red tie, he thinks, is a, is a Russian or a government agent. So it's like these sorts of patterns. And, he, and, and obviously, as a mathematician, he was sort of trained to look for patterns. So some of the stuff that he has as skills and as part of his genius are, are very much also a part of his illness. play right into like the things that are happening in his brain that might not necessarily be straightforward for him. Right. So paranoid schizophrenia is what's being portrayed. And some of those early symptoms that you're talking about, the sort of social awkwardness and ability to hold eye contact. What's, what's typical is for schizophrenia to start to emerge in this sort of late adolescence, early young adulthood. From what I know, I actually, I have a family member that has been diagnosed this way. And from what I knew, like it really starts showing it like in the early twenties in that kind of area. Yeah. And that's what's portrayed here is that you don't see any symptoms until John Nash's roommate shows up, who you don't know is a, is a delusion, a hallucination until later in the movie, but he is. And so we see him dealing with that person. There's the big brother. And then the third visual hallucination they identify in the movie is Charles's niece. Yeah, and that one kind of shows up out of the blue. Yeah. So you're watching this movie, and you start seeing Ed Harris. Remember, you don't know that Charles is, is a hallucination. These are giant air quotes, yeah. by the way. And you don't know that it's a figment of his imagination, but you, he meets Ed Harris, and they refer to him as Big Brother. Ed Harris takes him to the Pentagon, I guess? So it was after John Nash graduated college. And this is, this is real life. Yes, this is okay. real life. So he actually did have a, uh, I guess, a position or a postdoctorate position at the lab. That part was real. But then during the course of his symptom intensifying, he also sort of, at least in the movie, sort of ends up 
picturing this abandoned warehouse is actually full of people. Yes. Doing data crunching. The Pentagon scene was real. Okay, by the so way. he really did help them with something at some point. Yes. And then, okay, so what the movie is trying to tell us is that, and now this is something that he sees as himself. And okay, so you see a lot of like inflated ego and him looking down on other people as him being the smartest and only capable person. And so what we see is Big Brother, this is a character, Big Brother, physically walk up to him, verbally speaking. And him hearing and seeing like you and I would see each other, like Ryan and I are weirdly seeing each other in real life. That's right. <laughs> we do this over the internet. That's normally. right. You see him take him to an abandoned warehouse. And what they're after is they need John Nash's help to crack the codes that are laid out in newspapers and magazines and all these different things so that we know how the Russians are going to get us. It's like a Cold War thing, right? Yes. Okay. And and this is a period for John in which his symptoms are starting to increase, particularly, and this, this also was based, in fact, when his now wife, Alicia, is pregnant. Intensifying symptoms are consistent with intensifying stress or life events. And, and that goes with, I mean, any anything. Oh, yeah. You don't have to be schizophrenic to, yeah. to have that experience. No question. But for him, this sort of it starts to intensify his uh, schizophrenic symptoms. So he's becoming more paranoid. He's sort of believing more and more of his delusions. And as he is doing that, he's sort of following the delusionary thoughts that he has more and more. One of my big questions I wrote down was, from, from what I know as a total outsider to this one, that some people that have schizophrenia do have visual hallucinations. They might see things move. I always imagine it more like a like a drug trip or something, like maybe even not that intense or auditory hallucination. But I thought, is it this dramatic? Are you playing out entire scenes and going places and having conversations and covering your office walls with newspaper that you're cracking codes? Is, is this realistic? So some of it, yes. Some of it, no. So the whole like seeing an abandoned warehouse as some secret code station and like a really, really intense, what would be a visual hallucination where you see not just one person, but tens of people working on computers and doing all this uh, intense stuff. The, that intensity of visual hallucination is very unlikely. Okay. Uh, and even in John Nash in interviews, basically denies almost all visual hallucinations. He acknowledges he had auditory hallucinations, delusionary thinking. Um, so it's possible that he could have been talking to people as if he sure. heard them, but very unlikely that he was seeing people around him that weren't there. To your point about drug hallucinations, yeah, visual hallucinations seem to be a little bit more consistent with that. In real life. Um, yeah, in real life. Walls, moving, colors, being sort of inconsistent. But it's just not this dramatic. It's just not this dramatic. You're not having ongoing conversations with people you think are standing in front of you like you and I are. So do you think that this was purposely made this way just for to be an awesome movie? Or do you think it's a misconception from people who have no idea what they're talking about? So probably a little bit of both, okay. because if you saw someone talking to someone who wasn't there, you would imagine they were seeing you that. might assume that they were seeing a person that they were talking to. But if we think about people who talk to themselves, when I was a kid, I probably talked to myself walking down the boardwalk, you know, replaying romantic situations I <laughs> had just screwed up, right? Well, sure. One of the, the a catchphrase or a, a cliche is that, you know, we all talk to ourselves yeah, and, and I do yeah. it constantly throughout the day, you know, in my head I'm, and everyone right, does, right? Right. Because of the sort of other stigma of, of schizophrenia, they, that gets, gets sort of elevated to this comical point of view for the m movie purpose. 
So we're looking at someone who they're they're showing these visual hallucinations in a way. It's sort of a Hollywood trick to say, okay, whether he's seeing these people or not, he is probably interacting with them in okay, his head. Okay, so let's show it. Yes, so let's so show it easy. so we can get a sense a little bit more of what he's experiencing. Okay, and I get that. And and I do know a lot, uh, or at least from what I've heard, rumors and whatever, that there is a lot of paranoia that comes with paranoid schizophrenia. How does that like show up in the movie? And is it is it something that you would expect the level of paranoia that we see with John Nash? Uh, I mean, this is, yeah, yeah. Is this is this showing up in in the movie correctly? Is it is it something that you've seen in your practicing? Yeah, and to to be honest, I haven't practiced. I think in my career to this point, I've maybe worked with less than a handful of people who have well, because it's not super common, level, right? right? That's right. So this level of of schizophrenia. So so that being said. The paranoia that's shown in the movie is absolutely what you might see with someone who's experiencing these symptoms. Unfortunately, a lot of people who are paranoid, schizophrenic, end up homeless. You know, the sort of stereotypical person you see on the on the street corner right. holding up a sign that, you know, the end is near or the government is out to get you. Those are the types of of paranoid delusions someone with schizophrenia might be experiencing. Okay. And and for John Nash, and, and this is something that I, I wanted to talk about, because of the environment that he's in. He's in Princeton. He is a genius. Um, a legitimate genius. Yeah, no question. And, and the job that he had going to work for a government agency, a government lab through MIT. And that was after his graduate school and he yeah. went and worked for, through MIT for that agency. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so it was conceivable as, in the, as they show in the movie, you know, later on when all this stuff starts to come out, you know, how bad things really were for him. Even his coworkers say, you know, maybe it was possible that someone was giving him orders to be doing this kind of co-breaking. They say it was unlikely, but just that fact that it was possible, that there was this glimmer of, of realistic scenario. Like he, he is smart enough to be approached to do this. Exactly. Like this is not right. necessarily like a total, like, I can't, no way, dude, that's not happening to you. Right. Like he, cause he's operating on that level. Up that's there. right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So because he was operating on that level, there was just enough realistic plausibility that his delusions, his paranoia, at least had some aspect of realism to it. So it wasn't challenged. He wasn't fired for having magazine things. And, and again, that was also a little bit exaggerated. You know, he had some code-breaking paranoia that he was doing, but the, the sort of scenes that they showed. Right, right. I have a question about that. Please. So my sister helped me take notes because I was about to, like just go into a coma last night because sure. <laughs> I think I walked about 78 miles. And <laughs> so I was just really tired. So we were watching the movie and I was, I was dictating while she was writing sure. down. <laughs> this is like, this is my dream come true. She actually wrote down cause we were talking about it and we were just discussing the movie. So my sister wrote down why in movies in the media is tons of newspapers with strings going from one to the other in red circles with X's. Why is this like trying to show the, you know, the quote crazy? Like, why is this uh, like a, a thing? So it's a good visual representation of what might be happening internally for someone like John Nash or someone with these delusions in okay. the sense that they are trying to make connections and try and seeing connections often that are not there. With things like newspapers and lines pointed to things, and even the sort of visualization that they do in the movie of he sees letters pop out from the newspaper, yeah, which is cool. It's a cool visual, but it's it's this is not really more than likely what's happening. So when you're watching it, like Ron, so Ron Howard, amazing director, no question. Who, who doesn't love this guy? But he's just trying to show you 
I mean, he's got to he's got to try to show you, you know, what's going well, on right. in a brain. Because if this was just showing John Nash with his delusions, this movie would be much more sad. <laughs> and it is. And to and, me, as a, a therapist, it is sad. It would and, just be sure, a guy sitting boring, in a chair right. talking and people going, who's he talking right. to? Right. But instead you have a guy who can do tricks in the stars and a guy who sees letters pop up out of newspapers right. like magic and can make, you know, visual numbers connections just looking at a wall of numbers. Some of this is possible. Most of it is unlikely. Okay. Okay. So do you think what we're looking at as far as the portrayal is more of Ron Howard trying to just like get this on screen? Because it's so difficult to say what's happening. Yeah, that's that's a fair way to put it. And to that point, it is, it is I think, a good thing to show people who are experiencing mental illnesses being able to succeed. Because if you say the word schizophrenic, everyone pictures that guy on the street corner. Right. You don't picture the guy who went on to become a Nobel Prize winner and, mm-hmm. and teaching in Princeton. So to that extent, it's good that we're able to tell these stories but the exaggeration that's shown, we right. have a lot of problems with. Okay, so as a therapist, if someone were to come in your office, and obviously there's, there's a lot of misinformation about this particular disorder or illness or whatever, how, how do you spot it? How do you know that this is where you're going to go? And then how do you think that you're going to, how do you think you're going to go about it to start helping this person? Yeah, so similarly to um, going back to episode one, when we talked about Fight Club and people who are experiencing this type of delusions being very unlikely to seek help on their own, mm-hmm. it was the same for John Nash, both in this movie and in real life. In real life, I think he talked about being um, involuntarily committed to So that um, was accurate then? Yes. Okay, I have questions about that. And it was much more common during this time period of like 40s to 60s to 80s when state medical institutions or state mental health institutions were like the only way people who are experiencing this level of symptoms could get help Okay, would be either committed or go to these places places for months, if not sometimes years on end. Like, thank goodness we live in this age. Well, yeah. Well, but so that's interesting you say that because the problem has just shifted. So now do you know what the most, uh, I should say the biggest provider of mental health is in the United States? The biggest provider? Who is the biggest provider of mental health services? I would say emergency rooms. Jails. Oh, wow. Hmm. Because people like, whether it be John Nash or your sort of average person who gets sent to to prison for a marijuana possession, very frequently are suffering from mental illness. Wow. And the first time that they get screened is in a jail. They just have no idea. Right. And a lot of, a lot of times they have no, no idea getting away from that very sad point, which I'm happy to talk more about later. Right. So John Nash was involuntarily committed in this movie. And when that happens, it happens shortly after, um, which was a real event where he sort of attempts to give a speech. I don't remember what the uh, university was that he was giving a speech at, but right. He sort of goes up to give a speech and it's just just incoherent. I mean, that could be attributed to even just being nervous, but yeah, it was just like, he was, you know, just writing on the board and just like frivolously going crazy. Yeah. And you can see in the audience, people just sort of like not understanding what's happening or what he's talking about. So that did happen. John Nash has talked about that particular experience um, preceding one of his involuntarily um, hospitalizations, but he immediately thinks when he's hospitalized that it's the Russians or it's spies or it's the government are sort of abducting him to prevent him from solving the case or in the movie in the movie. Well, well, yes. So in the movie, that's what's portrayed, but there is no question that there is some uh, paranoia that would influence your ability to accept treatment. Okay. That's a big thing with paranoia and schizophrenia. And one of the reasons that they don't accept help 
is that pe- they're, they're sort of not trusting of trust. people who, who are, might be attempting to help them. Okay. And there's assumptions about medication. There's assumptions about who are you talking to about my treatment? There's just something right. about like, you know, confidentiality, all that kind of stuff. So it's a big problem. Okay. So, so to, to go back, because we yeah. kind of went off on a tangent yes, we there was someone comes into your office. Yep. I, I'm not sure that oh, the yeah, answer is so, there. They so, come yeah. into the office, like, how do you see it? And then where do you go from there? The reason that I answered the question the way I did is that it's unlikely that I'm just to have somebody come in off the street and say, yeah, I'm not sure what's wrong with me. I'm seeing people and I'm hearing things that are not there. Okay. It's much more likely that a parent or a significant other is going to bring them in and say, I don't quite know what's wrong. They are having trouble or they're seeing this or they're feeling that or they think I'm out to get them all the time. Sort of like uh, even like Lars in Lars and the Real Girl, Absolutely. our second episode, which is schizoid personality disorder. That's like, right. It's more common for these kind of different personality or, or disorders that are out there that they are brought by somebody who realizes they need help because it's like Lars could, did not realize it. Right. For example. Right. So you see John Nash go into treatment or anybody come into treatment to see me with these types of symptoms. And the things that might jump out are things like poor eye contact, paranoia type questions. Okay. You know, who are you working with? Who are you working for? Paranoid about medication. And even John Nash admits that he had some issues with the way medication was portrayed in the movie. We can okay. get into that as well. And I, yeah, tons, yep. of, tons of notes on that. Yeah, but basically the, the hallmark symptoms are going to be things like, I think people are against me. I think people are out to get me. They might acknowledge some delusions, some hallucinations, but it's much more likely to be things like that, that I think there's something wrong with other people and people are telling it's me. So I need to figure this out. I am. I do. I have a lot of questions about treatment. Great. But before we do that, what I was really wondering about was the portrayal of the psychiatrist. Okay. First off, my main question. Yep. Do psychiatrists in the 50s walk around with knockout drugs in their pocket? Because um, he just, uh, Russell Crowe or John Nash is like, Rawr! and he's, you know, having like this freak out and like the, the psychiatrist just walks up and pulls out a syringe and just knocks him out. And I was like, oh my God. So in these <laughs> state run psychiatric facilities, the psychiatrist might not have it in his pocket, but there's no question that there were orderlies everywhere more than likely with that capability. Really? Yeah. We were, we were very high on using medication as a, a form of behavior control and a lot of ways still and this are. is in the past well i mean if if you read any of the stories about and and this is controversial i'm not saying this is fact this is what i've read you can claim fake news but it was very common for, again from what i've read in some of the places that families and children were being kept people that were trying to cross the border they were being given medication not mm. necessarily what they needed but things like antipsychotics, so it was found um, by yeah. report right, by reporters that that was they're very highly prescribed. And for people that don't know what antipsychotics are, that sounds crazy and intense. But the reason that would be given to someone is just very sedating. Yeah, it just exactly. makes you it makes yeah. you calm down. Um, it, Compliant, it's like, a, like yeah, and like a sleeping pill almost. So you're just very tired. It's mm-hmm. easy to have people direct you around if you're that. So it's not like. Uh, they're giving you these crazy brain altering, no, like, no. yeah, like change you drugs. They're just like making you tired. And that's what happens with John Nash is that after the speech, he's ambushed by a bunch of people that work for the psychiatric hospital. They give him a drug. He calms down. He starts freaking out the hospital. They give him a drug. He calms down. So, so what was your opinion of the psychiatrist in this? Judging through the lens of the 40s or 50s or 60s or whenever that scene was portrayed, it's pretty Standard. And some of it is too, like, is he really acting that way? Right. 
at the sort of big ornate office um, with <laughs> many leather bound books. The psychiatrist or the the people running the these facilities were like the authority. Okay. So they they had a lot of authority to keep people there to to sort of block people from being discharged if they didn't think they were safe. You know, so it was really a um, an intense system that we've moved away from, but that's caused other problems. Okay. Okay. So you being professional, yep. We've seen how, and maybe even kind of accurately, just very aggressive treatment. So in the movie, they do electrotherapy, electroconvulsive shock therapy. Yeah. Okay. ACT. I was wondering if we could talk about that. How if that was really a common thing to do, which I think it was. And is, do we still use that? Uh, is that a form of therapy that works? And then if it's not, what are we doing now? Sure. Yes, it was common then. And interestingly, it's making a comeback. Now it shifted. It doesn't look exactly like it did in the movie with sort of these. It's like someone's being, you know, like an electric indu- chair. Yeah, well, right. Inducing really what looks like a stroke or right. a, um, an epileptic seizure. But it's coming back now in, in sort of a more, much more controlled appropriately researched fashion and is actually being used to treat everything from schizophrenia to even depression. So it's really interesting. My, my psychologist recommended it for me yeah. actually. Yeah. But it seems much, it seems like a very light thing. Yes. And, it, and she also said, it's kind of like you're, you've tried meds. It's like your last option or not option, but it's something else to try. A different approach. Right. Yeah. And, and I've worked with people who have had this experience and have had positive results from it. So you hear, you know, electroconvulsive therapy, electroconvulsive shock therapy. It sounds really scary. Because of pop culture. Well, right. And because of showing scenes like this where, you know, and, and um, his wife asked, you know, how often does he have to do this? And I think the psychiatrist said like every day for two weeks. So what they do show is they put Russell Crowe in a bed, they tie his arms and legs down, they put a tongue depressor in his mouth, and then they're just, I mean, they're like electrocuting him and he's like, you know, shaking and going crazy. That exact scene that I'm setting in your mind, is that what it was like? For me, there's no doubt that scenes very close to that happened during that time. Happily, it's come a long way from that. But yeah, in the sense that, and, and to a certain extent, I'm sure some of it was exaggerated. Back in the, the sort of crazy days of the 40s and 50s, we were trying a lot of different things to help people with these types of symptoms. In the 50s, they're, in the movie, they show he does electroshock therapy, and then they also show meds. Yes. But those are the only two things they show. Right. So he my doesn't question show with being, any therapy. That's true. what meds do you think he's taking? What kind of medications? And w- were there other therapies back then? So medication would have been the sort of first method of treatment, as I mentioned before. Your most common medications are going to be things like Thorazine. And, the, right. the sort and they of, said that in the movie. Yeah. So and, and the sort of context of that, you, you now hear things like the Thorazine shuffle, which is, you know, for people in, medi- in, in um, psychiatric institutions, it's just like people are on this medication and they just look like zombies. They oh, yeah, sort of yeah, yeah. They don't shuffle from room up. to room. Yeah, just sort of look like they're in a daze. Wow. Yeah, and, and that's a lot of that's true. Okay, wow. And, and to that extent, we're not so surprised that John Nash in real life and in the movie was very opposed to medication. To me, when I was watching it, at least before the medication starts in the movie, Like, he's very, very paranoid, and of course, like we said, they're showing these things that are, like, way, like, totally exaggerated as far as what he's seeing, but he's an active person, and then he starts taking his medication, and it's, like, destroying his marriage, and he's sitting in his house, and his hair is, like, he's not doing his hair, he's not shaving, he's just sitting in a chair, and he looks way worse. So that's interesting, because with these really intense medications, the presentation can start to look like your standard depression that 
He is highly medicated, so he's sedated in that sense. But now, as he mentions in the movie, he doesn't feel like his brain is working the way it was. And, and realistically, it's not. And for him, that's probably scary. Oh, no question. And that's why, as you see in the movie, he starts to sort of pocket his pills and he starts hiding them. And that's when the symptoms ramp up again. Okay. And this is, a, this is unfortunately a common experience for people. They take medication, even if they know it's helping. There are reasons, as, as John Nash talks about in the movie, why he doesn't want to take them. He can't perform for his wife. Right. Uh, sexually. And that's a huge deal for, you know, even antidepressants no do that. And it is a big yep. deal. They make you like that. That's part of the decision whether you're going to take them. Absolutely. And I will say the psychiatrists, especially that I've worked with, have more and more increasingly recognized that as something that if this is some uh, a side effect, essentially, that they will switch the medication because they don't want you to not take your medication because of this type of an issue. Correct. But Especially because yeah. that's something a lot of people don't want to talk about. Of course. And so they might hide it. So they got to be upfront about it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There's the, a common question um, when you're dealing with uh, new medications. Right. But that's just one thing, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. And, and, and you mentioned before also, he, he, it's very apparent that he's not taking care of himself. Um, anytime Russell Crowe or John Nash in this movie has a beard or has like that five, you know, five day haven't, hasn't shaved, it's like a sign that his symptoms are increasing. And unfortunately, that is the common, yeah. that's very common with schizophrenia, very poor self-care. I have, an, I have one of those right now, but it's just because it, it makes me very handsome. Yeah, you've just chosen. <laughs> this, is a, this is an intentional five-day no-shaving. <laughs> but yeah, so, so he you know, experiences all these sort of effects or side effects and you know, immediately doesn't want to be on the medication anymore. Yeah. And as a result, his symptoms kick back in. I did not see therapy. And I thought, that can't be, even then that can't be. Well, maybe not though. So that's, I'm wondering, like they did, it didn't show any therapy. Right. And I was wondering, is that a way we approach it now? Did we do that then? Or is that just something that doesn't work in this case? So which it, I, I would never say. No, of course. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. So basically it, it certainly was common then just because, as I said, you know, you're, you're taking all of these people with severe mental illness, putting them in psychiatric institutions and that's where the word institutionalizing comes from. It's, oh, it's yeah. putting people in positions where they aren't, quote unquote, a menace to society, Yikes. but they're also not getting the help that they would need to be able to return to society. They're just, they're just pulling them off the street. Yes. And saying, stay away from people, you crazy. Stay here where we can protect right. you and protect everybody else. It's, it's really hard, obviously, as a therapist to watch that because he's not getting treatment that might be able to help him, let's say, rethink, uh, recontextualize some of his delusions use his support system differently, yeah. you know, do all these things that might help him combat these symptoms in a more effective way. But as he, they did show this sort of very brief interaction with the head psychiatrist, that's probably similar to what you would see in terms of quote unquote therapy is your weekly visit with a psychiatrist basically asking, you know, Hey, how's everything going? And right. if he notices you start talking to somebody who's not in the room, like, okay, there's another symptom and we change the meds. Yeah. Yeah. To the extent that they had therapy, you know, it was pretty uncommon. That's what I'm wondering. So, so is this approach differently now than it was then, like as far as therapy is concerned? Yes, much, much different. And what positive or even sure. is there negative? Like, is, like what effects is, do you, are people seeing? The difference that you would see now, because there are still state um, psychiatric facilities open. Actually, the one that John Nash went to in the movie still exists, Trenton. The shift that you would most notably see is the prevalence of therapy happening. Right. Everything from group therapy individual Which therapy. Which you are a huge supporter of, right? Absolutely. Group support. Yeah, because and as John's wife tries to do, tries to establish what is real, what is normal as much as possible for him. And group therapy is a, a great way to do that. You get to talk to other people who are dealing with your diagnosis or your symptoms, 
and okay, this is normal or okay, this is not. I need to challenge myself on this experience. Mm -hmm. And then therapy as well. You know, it's much more likely that you'll have an individual therapist you see once a week consistently, if not more frequently Mm -hmm. in these types of institutions now. I think it's beneficial for every person that's alive to have someone to talk to that's unbiased and it's their job to listen to you. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It's, it's, you need to be, people need to be heard. Yeah, but unfortunately, because the, some of these, psych, most of these, I should say, state psychiatric institutions have been closed, it's much more likely that people dealing with even schizophrenia are seen in an outpatient basis. Oh, it's wow. sort of like town mental health clinics and things okay. like that, where the primary treatment they might be receiving is medication. It's like, come and get your meds sure. however so often. But now the nice thing that we've changed is that if you're getting meds here, you also have to see a therapist here, or you have to have a therapist that we're in contact with. So it's been much more tied to that these things have to go together. All right, we're going to stop and take a quick break and tell you guys about a really cool podcast, and then we'll be right back. Quick break to talk about one of our favorite podcasts, The Antidotes Podcast, Stories in Medicine, a weekly podcast hosted by an EMT turned nurse practitioner who swaps stories with other nurses, paramedics, doctors, and medical professionals. Their tales range from humorous to wild to moving, but all have shaped the way they have practiced medicine. So definitely check out The Antidotes Podcast, Stories in Medicine. And now back to Pop Psych 101. All right. With all that being said, you had mentioned to me, and you've mentioned a couple of times already, that John Nash was actually alive and around when this movie came out in 2001. And it sounds like he had pretty big opinions on it. You've actually mentioned a couple of opinions, but I wanted to really just jump in on that and like explore. And what do you know about that? Like, what didn't he like? What is to him, the person who lived this, what is totally unreal or whatever? Yeah. And it's interesting because if you watch the movie, you do pick up on the fact that John Nash, the person, I'm sorry, I should say John Nash, the character in the movie, sees himself as a genius, someone that wants to be known for his big ideas. You know, we didn't even talk about the the sort of central theme. He has an ego on him. Oh, yeah. And that's not a bad thing. Right. Nothing wrong with being... Almost rightfully so. Right. Well, yeah, he, he Nobel Prize, you know, the game theory stuff, which I couldn't even begin to explain, but right. (laughs) See, he sees himself as not wanting to be defined by this, both in the movie and then in real life, as, as, as we find out. He uh, had a lot of problems with how the movie portrays sort of the, the end, I should say the, the, the end of the movie, not the end of his life, where he sort of, in the movie, acknowledges that the medication has improved and it's made it easier for him to manage like, the, the like as improved as in like the the people making it have made better medications is what it's implying i think he even says at one point like the newer drugs are better if you read interviews um i think there's even a, a youtube interview series he says you know i've stopped taking my meds he feels that he was able to essentially address his symptoms medication free now uh, we should emphasize there's nothing inherently wrong with that. If you feel that like you can cope without your medication, more power to you. And you and you do cope. Oh, sure. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But important in the context of the movie, the way the movie's shown, if you haven't you know, seen these interviews, it's made very clear. And so again, a little bit of background. Apparently, the I want to say the mother of the screenwriter of the movie is a psychiatrist and had issues with the possibility of the movie showing John Nash in a way that would discourage people from taking their medication. Oh, wow. So there's, so there's good there. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's from a right place. Yeah. So the reason that the movie portrays it this way is because it wants to send a message that's not necessarily pro-medication, but 
um, sees medication as something that is a, a positive path option, I should right. say. And things are getting better. Like, let's be aware of that. Okay, okay, totally, yeah. totally understand that. Now, earlier you mentioned he had issues with the visuals. Uh, I just wanted to kind of like really focus on that and and talk about the realities of visuals. We talked a little bit about how a little bit things, but why is this so much more drastically going on? Like, what is if you can go further into that, I suppose. Well, yeah. So even if you look at the diagnostic codes for uh, schizophrenia, it focuses on the sort of paranoid delusions and auditory hallucinations. Visual hallucinations are barely even addressed in that sense that it's not that common of a symptom. So this is not the primary thing, which is is a huge thing that like an outsider sees yeah. as the primary thing happening. Right. Okay. And now we should we should point out that the sort of disorganized thinking that is a hallmark of schizophrenia could make someone seem to the outside like they are responding to things that are not there. So again, we have to sort of uh, reconcile the way this movie portrays schizophrenia with the way it is in real life. Obviously, uh, Ron Howard, the director, is doing, doing a lot of sort of visual tricks to kind of show the audience or and people we, around him. We talked him. about how you kind of have to. Right. But I think there is a certain extent that goes from just showing it to give us the idea mm -hmm. to complete make-believe. Yes. The rooms full of people, mm -hmm. him turning to his wife or, yeah, to his wife and saying about the niece that was a figment of his imagination in the movie, she's never grown older. So, <laughs> so now, and, and it was like, you know, you're watching the movie and, and everyone goes, oh, he figured it out. Like the twist. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, so I thank you for bringing that up because it sort of portrays it as this idea that you can just mentally beat hallucinations that just, oh, right. you just figure it out. Correct. And then the next part of the movie goes into him trying to mentally beat Yes. And, and it kind of ends on the fact that like he conquered schizophrenia with bit. his mind, yeah. you know. And, and they do try to acknowledge that the, the hallucinations have not disappeared. Like the three quote unquote he, characters are still following okay him around. Them now. He can just not acknowledge them okay. and not be affected it's by just, them. It's just a lot of hyperbole. Well, and that's, that's the irresponsibility because if you are a person suffering from schizophrenia, you might think, oh, I just need to think my way through this. Well, that's the same thing as someone saying, as a friend who doesn't know anything is saying, oh, it's just all in your head. That's the same yeah. thing. Yes. So it's not, that's not how it is. Well, right. So, and, and as we said before, he, he's not in therapy. He's not right. in a support group. He's not taking his medication. So what is he doing that's making things better? And the only thing we can really pull out from the movie is that he has an environment where there's a lot of social support. Okay. He's doing an activity or essentially a job that he is very engaged in, very passionate about. So he's, he's, has positive engagement in his life. You know, he's got a wife, he's got a son. Who are supportive of him, very, his wife. And this is the second example where we have a very supportive family member. Yes. So far in, in this series. And, and, she, and she loves him, right? And actually, she was his wife for his whole life. Yes. Yep. And it's interesting because there's the, the sort of second opportunity in which they could have psychiatrically admitted him to the hospital. The doctor told her she could sign him into the hospital, essentially, because of the symptoms. You know, he almost drowned the baby. Right. And she, I won't say enables because families have to make these decisions all the time, but she makes the decision to kind of stay with him and support him however he wants to beat this. Right. I think that would be the only part that kind of triggered me a little bit, sure. if you want to call it, because 
as, as I've talked on previous episodes of how much I love my wife and I'm yeah, yeah. afraid of her leaving. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there was a section of the movie where you were unsure if she could handle this, you know, and if she loved him anymore. But in the end, she knew he was the same person and she felt so bad for him that this is something he had to deal with. You know, this is not his fault. Right. And, and I, I did find that very beautiful that she, even at the very beginning, her first reaction was to cry and say, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. So that was very, I, I really like that. Yeah. But she, you see the sort of family impact, you know, she has the one breakdown after he's not uh, responding to her sexually and she throws the glass against the, the mirror, everything shatters. And she sort of has that crisis point. And then that's not acknowledging even before where he almost drowns their baby in the bath. Oh yeah. After he's not taking his meds. Little yeah. kids seems scary man. stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So th- this obviously all mental illness has an impact on the family, yes. but for family members to have to, to manage hallucinations is, is a really difficult task to ask. Mm. This is thick, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and it's for some people unbelievable, you yeah, know, they absolutely. can't come to terms with this could be happening to someone. Well, right. And, and we talked before about why the stereotypes exist of the sort of person on the street corner with schizophrenia. It's because it is difficult for them to stay in relationships. Exactly. And it's, it's difficult for some family members to support them. Sure. And they wind up, even if they get a job, let's say they have an episode at a job where mm-hmm whether it be paranoia or auditory hallucinations and other people find out huge stigma here, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe they lose the job over that, which should not happen. Obviously there, there should be more and greater companies come out now and have a lot more support for that kind of yep. thing. I'm sure it does happen. And, and where are they going to go? You know, mm-hmm. and that's how, yeah, that's, I mean, I can see how that would happen. Yeah. And it's, uh, um, I guess super unfortunate. Yeah. One of the last things I wanted to cover is one of the reasons why John Nash's symptoms and things weren't caught earlier. Okay, because it didn't happen until he was like almost 30, right? Yeah, past. And, and we should acknowledge, obviously, this happens back in the 40s and 50s when people were not as... I mean, Russell Crowe looked about 48, even when he was supposed to be 22. <laughs> when so he was in yeah. college, or, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so that's a problem. But from a broader mental health standpoint, as I mentioned on the podcast before, I work in Princeton. It's an environment like any high-pressure educational environment. I won't say causes these symptoms necessarily, but it's really hard because it sort of normalizes things being difficult. That's so, true. Like you should be able to handle this stress. Right. But I mean, we're in Manhattan right now. I think that's the entire city here. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> right. So things like um, I'm not getting a lot of sleep. It's just like, yeah, man. So you have uh, it's exam week. You're not supposed to get sleep. Which is. And, and, and that's baloney, not, man. Well, well, right, but but right, but that's not, and that's not the school saying that. Right, that's, it's that's peer the pressure. internalized messaging yep. that these that kids and families have about being in these environments. So someone like John Nash, a little bit socially awkward, sort of made fun of periodically, but no one even knew, even until after he was graduated, that he had a, a essentially a made up roommate. I mean, the, the personally, the most unrealistic scene is throwing your desk out of a window yeah. um, three floors down. After you just cr- cracked your own head open, you're bleeding. And being able to remain on campus. <laughs> exactly. And just, I think people are looking at it like, whoa, from the bottom. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and like, oh, you know, well, um, you're Sigma a genius. Alpha Pi. Yeah, so you just get to stay here. And the reality is you, you would probably be kicked out of campus, not necessarily school, but you would at the very least probably lose your housing for yeah. an incident like that. But it's they again, probably it's, start digging into why this happened. Yes. Too. Okay. Yeah. So that's so some of that is what's better now because people would take those things much more seriously. There'd be signs that there'd be something 
worse or more intense going on that we need to pay attention to. I just think uh, even in cases like this, and you were talking about the homeless people, and, and I just, I feel for anyone that's going through any of this stuff. Yeah. And I just, I just, um, I don't know. My heart breaks for people when they, when they have to deal with it. It's hard. So yeah. And this, this is a sad movie. I mean, yeah. we, you know, we were talking before we came back. Why is this movie an Oscar winner? I have opinions. Yeah. Opinions. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's very dramatic. It's very dramatized in the sense of how they portray mental illness and right. all these sort of little moments. So I think that probably brings us to a good place. If you haven't listened yet, every week, Ryan and I rate on a scale of one to five. Ryan rates between one and five for accuracy. And I rate between one and five how much or how good I thought the media was that week. So, Ryan, uh, I'm. this is the only episode so far where I didn't come in going, I know what Ryan's going to rate this. So I am, I'm totally in the blue on this one. Okay. Or in the dark, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so this is a tough one. And I'm going to rate out of five algorithms. Oh. Since that's what uh, John Nash was constantly drawing yeah. on the windows. And I need to create an really algorithm to make see what these birds yes, movement. Yeah, that's right. And this is the football team and this is all that. So I thought, I thought that was fascinating for someone who was math literate one out of five algorithms <laughs> yeah so on a scale of one to five and I'll, I'll precede this with you know obviously you've heard me talk about all throughout the episode that this is not what schizophrenia looks like in terms of the portrayal of visual hallucinations correct you know that being said the sort of difficulty that the family experiences the difficulty even to the certain extent that friends and and his 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 other students yeah um, yeah they definitely react a lot like I believe my friends would, you know, yeah, like, yeah. well, mm, you know, yep. he's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And to that extent, so I'll just come out and say, I rated this a two out of five okay. on the, the two out of five algorithm in terms of how accurate it is, because there are things that are accurate, you know, the sort of um, paranoia. Wow. You went lower than I thought. Well, I just, that, I thought I had convinced you in this episode yeah. that Ron Howard's attempt to show it was the only way to do it. And you were going to go higher. Even if that's the case. Don't we have to be responsible about how we're portraying mental health, right? Yeah. Because do. then that, and that's, that's what we're talking about. And that's why even the, I imagine that the um, script writer did what they did. It's with like the, with the pills. Yeah. yeah it's like, that, that was a responsible even, move. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even if this is the way you have to do it to win an Oscar, even if this is the way that John Nash was able to be successful, this media has an impact on people. Like, yes, absolutely. Especially. Well, I think everyone, when they see this, there are opinions formed immediately. Yeah. And even think about if you are a Princeton student and you come into Princeton and you watch A Beautiful Mind, it's like, man, even the guy with schizophrenia ends up winning a Nobel Prize. Yeah. And the way the schizophrenia is portrayed and he doesn't go to class, but he still gets the, the merit thing. Yeah. So in terms of the usefulness... You know, we might show a couple clips in a class I was teaching of like, okay, you know, here's his paranoid delusions. And Maybe you could use the, here's how it affects a, a husband and wife. Uh, so no question. Yeah. Absolutely. That's and, pretty accurate. Because that, and that's where my two bordering on three comes from. It's like the wife experiences the stuff with him. Mm -hmm. She sees the, the sort of depths of the hallucinations that he's okay. experiencing and does her best to cope with that, to go along for the ride into some points. I actually, yeah, I, I really liked her character a lot. Yeah. yeah. You know, so there are things that are real here and there are things that we can take away and learn. But in terms of what schizophrenia is, what paranoid schizophrenia is, it's tough. And, and frankly, even to John Nash's point, like he's the one with the mental illness that's being portrayed and he doesn't agree with it. Yeah. So we kind of have to factor that in. I definitely agree. Uh, so that's why for me, I went with two out of five. 
All right, it's a two out of five algorithms for Ryan. Okay, now I'm going to do one out of five stars for how much I liked this movie. And I think I'm going to surprise everyone. This one is a four Oscar winner for Best Picture, Best Adaptive Screenplay, Best Supportive Actress, and one, what was the other one? There was another one. And it, I, either way, this thing dominated that year. Yep. And it's a two. I didn't think it was a good movie. And I'll tell you why, just as a movie standpoint, it just, it just, if you're going to do a biopic, I want to know this person. Like they just skipped through his life at such fast paces. And, and they tried to cover his whole life, yeah, which is another yeah. thing that John Nash had a problem with. I mean, do you have to show the old age teaching and then Nobel they, Prize scene? They could have made that the last scene, but then focused mostly on the most, the more beginning stuff. Or you could have put that in a postscript. You know, John Nash went on to win Nobel Prizes, blah, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And show a, a real picture of him. Right. But instead yeah. they put Russell Crowe in old man makeup. <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's just tough. That's where it kind of like, okay, now, now we're just trying to get this like Oscar moment. And it's very apparent that it's like. Yeah. They do it to Jennifer Connelly too, oh, who she, plays his wife. And unrecognizable. It's even worse. Unrecognizable. It's even worse. Yeah. Um, yeah, the old mate, the old Maybe it looks like his wife in real life. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, yeah. So it's definitely a two for me. I I get the the wins on a couple though. I get why they got best supporting actress. I get that one. I get best adaptive screenplay. Oh, the other one was best direction. And I love Ron Howard, so this isn't a knock against him, but I don't get that one or best best uh overall picture. Overall yeah. picture. So two for me. All right, guys. Uh that's all we got time for this week on Pop Psych 101. Uh, we are in Manhattan recording at our podcast host headquarters, Anchor.fm. If you are interested in starting your own podcast, I suggest going to Anchor.fm and looking into it. It's super easy. Once again, like I said last episode, it's not a commercial. It really is just easy and very cool. Uh, so also, I need to give a shout out to Kevin McLeod, who we do use the song Killers and Perspectives in this episode uh, and, and fabulous music that he makes. You can go to incompetech.com to get royalty-free music to use for your productions. So, guys, uh, thank you, Ryan, once again for having me on. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for coming out to New York City. Yeah. Blast. <laughs> All right, so it's been really cool recording here from Anchor Podcast Lab, and there are just a couple things I want to emphasize in our review of Beautiful Mind. We talk a lot about stigma here on Pop Psych 101, but this is one example where the stigma of schizophrenia and mental health in general is hard to ignore. People with mental illness are far more likely to be the victims of violence than perpetrators of violence. That said, people like John Nash are capable of hurting people, but like in the movie, it's far more often out of fear than it is aggression. Secondly, unfortunately, psychiatric hospitalization is sometimes necessary. It's important to remember that hospitals have come a long way from the time of John Nash and the doctors and therapists are there to help. So if you or a family member has to be hospitalized for psychiatric reasons, know that it's in your and your family best interest. Finally, John Nash is the person in real life and in the movie, they both have a lot of hangups about medication. Obviously there are possible side effects with any medication, but any good psychiatrist will be wanting to work with you to get the symptoms addressed in an effective way. So the best approach is to try to trust the medical professional, knowing that you can always step back, reverse course, or change doctors if you have a negative experience. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Thank you to my co-host, Mike Graham. If you like the show, please check out our social media pages. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at PopPsych101. We also love hearing from our listeners. So if you want to give feedback or suggest something for us to cover, you can email us at PopPsych101 at gmail.com. We are also on all major podcast distribution channels. So please subscribe, rate, and review our show. We would greatly appreciate it. 
For Mike Graham, I'm Ryan Engelstad. Thanks for listening to Pop Psych 101.